Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. Glad to have you join us because you have just tuned into a show unlike any other. It's a show that really offers three things that we all need and never seem to get enough of. Hope, inspiration, and possibility. Yes, you are about to experience growing bolder, and it might just change your life. Whether you've been thinking about changing jobs, starting a hobby, taking an adventure vacation, making a lifestyle change, or stepping up to face one of life's endless challenges, over the next hour, you will find the inspiration and the motivation to do it. And here's exactly how that's going to happen. On today's program, you'll hear from a retired teacher and talk about incredible ideas. He's helped the homeless by personally handing out over a half a million sandwiches last year alone. Also an 80-year-old skateboarding, tiny house building, green living, book publishing, renaissance man. A lung cancer survivor with a powerful message about the end of life and a woman who hit 50 decided her life was for the birds literally, and did something about it. But we start with a true legend of classic rock. We've got amazing people, amazing stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Oh, man, how good is that? We're going to take you on a trip so far from here, folks. All you need are two tickets to paradise. Great song, and you're about to meet the very cool guy who wrote it and many, many other big-time hits. Singer-songwriters, of course, a pretty interesting breed to begin with. Their lives are kind of like puzzles, and maybe each song they create is one little piece of the big picture. It's part of their story that then becomes part of ours, and our next guest, Bill, has created songs that are part of of our very culture, the fabric of who we are. Listen to that riff. I can listen to that all day long. This guy's amazing. And here's the growing bolder bit. He's not done yet. In fact, he's still writing great songs, still out there performing, and still loving what he's doing, probably because he's one of those stars that gets it. He understands how fortunate he is, and he has a great story to tell and an inspiring one as well. Let's say hi to a true icon of classic rock, Eddie Money. Eddie, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you guys doing today? Thank you so much for the call. Hey, love having you on the program, mainly because one of the things you're doing, you probably don't even realize, is you're raising the bar for what it's like to be uh, 65. How have you managed to become one of those guys for whom age doesn't really seem to be a factor? Well, you know, the, the, the secret to, uh, I think, my success and my longevity is, is you know, if you're going to be drinking vodka or do whatever you're going to do. You know, Bill Graham was a rock impresario. He started the Fillmore East. He originally managed uh, Janis Joplin. He, he managed the Grateful Dead. Unfortunately, died in a helicopter, actually, in the early 90s. And to tell you the truth, you know, you've got to go out there and give 100%. When you make a record... I made my records sound very, very much live. When I made my records, I wanted them to sound very live. So then when I repeat the records, whether it be a Two Tickets Paradise or Baby Hold On or Take Me On Tonight, you know, you could close your eyes and you think that you were listening to the album. I mean, there's a lot of groups that go out there that really, you know, they don't sound like the record. They don't really care about it. But I really feel like that people, that they were nice enough and interested enough in your career and your singing ability and your song writing to go out and purchase your uh, purchase your album, you won't, you don't want to turn around and disappoint people. So we do everything we can to sound pretty much like the record. And you know, Eddie, e- even for you, you, you make fabulous, fabulous music. But I'm not even certain that that's enough these days. Even for guys like you, the way radio is, it's hard to get new music on the air. And yeah, they'll play two tickets or, or take me home, but you're still writing, you're still recording. How hard is it for you to break new songs these days? And have you had to embrace this whole digital world that we now live in? Well, you know, my buddy Tom Petty, uh, he hadn't put a record out in 10 years on Warner Brothers. And a couple of months back, he put a new record out and it went to number one for a couple of weeks, which I thought was very exciting. And I thought the record was really good. And, uh, over the last uh, 10 years, basically probably the last five years, I've written some really fantastic songs. And, uh, you know, once they buy your greatest hits, once, you know, I mean, I had 12 songs in the top 100, whether it be a Sick Me Ops and I had a Baby Hold On, a 
maybe I'm a fool, uh, give me some water, walk on water. Uh, you know, once they buy your greatest hits, they're not going to go out and buy something new from you. But then again, you know, there's a, if you, with the power of the Internet and stuff like that, and the interest that I have in the new material, uh, you know, I might get lucky, I might not. Uh, my son, Des, I have a son named Des Money. Is, you can download him at desmoneymusic.com. I think he's a very talented individual. I think he's really a, a very, very good songwriter. And I never really pushed him to get into uh, being an entertainer. Actually, I wanted him to be a lawyer or, don't laugh at this, but maybe a dentist. <laughs> but he got into rock and roll, and he's really a great artist. And my, also my daughter, Jessica, who used to tour with me a lot on the road. She's an excellent singer, and she's got great stage presence. So, I mean, the kids, uh, the apple don't fall far from the tree. They're very talented, and I think it's really their time, their time maybe in life, to make some wave, waves and carry on the money made. But, you know, you're such a great writer, Eddie, and one of the things I always thought in my mind is that, you know, when you're young, it's, it, the, every song you write, it's like an I love you song or something. From where we are now at this stage in life, I mean, there's so much more to write about. I would have to agree with you right there. You know, I wrote a song about my daughter. I mean, she grew up and she went to a parochial school, and a lot of the kids, it's not really easy being a rock star's kid at school. And, uh, you know, my kids, uh, you know, when they go to school with other kids, they think that they're different than other children, but they're really, really not. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, my kids, they didn't live a sheltered life. They had a really they had very good, you know, average childhood and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, fame and fortune, it's got its benefits, but then again, it's got its drawbacks, too, you know, especially for a kid if you're the son of a rock star, you know, or, or the daughter of a rock star, you know. Folks, we're talking to Eddie Money, who is a rock star and has been for decades. And, and Eddie, you know, it's interesting uh, in, in that your father and grandfather were both New York City cops, and, and you were actually two for a while. Did you grow up thinking that would be your destiny? or And if so, how hard was it uh, not to make it so? Well, I was in a band called The Grapes of Wrath in, in high school. As a matter of fact, we're putting a play on right now in Long Island called uh, Two Tickets to Paradise, the musical, and I wrote some really Broadway type of songs for the musical. And, uh, you know, growing up the son of a cop, I hate to say it was a very good joke about it. When you're the son of a cop, you're always the first one. <laughs> you're always the first one over the fence, so to speak. But, uh, you know, my father was an Irish Catholic. I mean, he was a he was a spiritual man. He really loved his kids, but he was very anti. You know, he didn't really see rock and roll as a way to, to really make a living. And, uh, you know, my band and I, we were, we, we were dreaming of becoming famous. But then uh, when I got out of high school, my brother was in Vietnam at the time, and my mother and father didn't really want me to go to Vietnam, so I went on the police department, which I, I thought was a pretty good idea because, you know, basically police, you know, policemen are like firemen or emergency service workers. I mean, it was really there to help people out. You know, I mean, I mean, if you get lost, you ask a cop for, you know, I mean, to me, a lot of a lot of cops get bad raps. I mean, it's not an easy job. And I think that, you know, they're all family-loving people. And I think people become pop cops not because they're on power trips. I think people become cops or just like firemen or people that drive ambulances because basically they want to help people out. And that's how I looked at life. But then again, I couldn't really see myself in uniform for 22 years of my life in a police uniform. That's what really like turned me off on the police department. I figured my brother was wanted to Vietnam. He was in the Marine Corps. I figured, you know, I should have actually went into the Navy or the Marine Corps and did like my two to four years and gotten it over with. I just didn't want to wear, you know, I just didn't want the regimentation of, of being a police officer for 22 years of my life, especially being on a rock band, you know, and, uh, so the band, I, I quit the police department. My father was patrolman of the year when I quit. And I moved out to California, and I pursued uh, rock and roll. And eventually I got a record deal with Columbia Records and with the rock and serial Bill Graham. And after that, we had like 12, 13, 14 songs in the top 100. I turned around. I was making $1,000 a minute for a 75-minute show. And things really started taking off. Things were really great. So, so let's see. Take the good with the bad, let's you know? see, Eddie. What do I want to choose? Being a cop or sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Seems like a pretty easy choice. Uh, and I and, and I and <laughs> well, I know. I'm married now, so we'll have to take away about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I got to be <laughs> you know, five, five kids, but uh, one one but, of the, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, there is a benefit to being a rock star or being a famous musician. I mean. I mean, who doesn't love the girls? I mean, I mean, I was always very girl crazy growing up, and I did have a lot of girlfriends. And eventually, I found my wife Lori, who was the love of my life. And uh, I don't have to look around anymore; she's a sweetheart of a gal. 
And, you know, she's a great mother. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke. She runs five miles a day. She doesn't let a, she doesn't let us cook hamburger in the house, which kind of upsets me since I love beef. But outside of that, I got a pretty good marriage. So, Eddie, there is another side to it, and it's another part of the reason we dig you so much is that you did have your your battle with alcoholism, and and you you found the courage and the strength, and you really turned it into an inspiring victory over it. Uh, where, where does that kind of courage come from? Well, you know, when you when you're growing up, and, and you know, you, you get turned on to vodka, you turn to get turned on to beer, you start smoking pot. I, I mean, back in the '60s and '70s, I mean, everybody was very abusive to their bodies and stuff like that. But uh, you know, my marriage to me, you know, my wife was, you know, just me getting drunk. And uh, plus, when you're raising kids, you don't want your kid, you don't you want you don't want your kids growing up thinking your father is an alcoholic or your father is a drug addict. I mean, once I started raising kids, you know, I became more like my father. Things really, really turned around. I got about, uh, I love five years in a spiritual uh, program at probably uh, at coming up on this March. And I just recently, which was very tough, quit smoking cigarettes after so many years. So I think I'm on the right track anyway, you know. Eddie Money is such an interesting guy, still very relevant. And if you get a chance to see this guy out there on tour, go, because he's still got it. He's still doing it. And also experiment a little bit. Check out some of his newer records, because he's got some really good stuff going out, uh, going on out there with, with some deep meaning into it and uh, some stuff I think you'll really like listening to. So keep an eye out for Eddie Money. You can find out the latest at eddiemoney.com. Sure appreciate you taking the time to throw a little wisdom our way, Eddie. See you out there on the road. Up next, a woman who turned 50 and decided her life was for the birds. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. This is Growing Boulder Radio. That's Mark Middleton. I'm Bill Schaefer. And how cool are birds of prey? I'm talking about hawks and eagles and falcons and some of the most incredible creatures in the world. And they've been struggling to cope with people developing and moving into previously uninhabited areas. Yeah, and obviously some have fared better than others. But when these great birds become injured, they often need humans to step in and help nurse them back to health. And for that, it takes a very special kind of person, somebody like Carol McCorkle, who started her own avian reconditioning center. Listen to this. That's kind of beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It's really gorgeous. The birds seem anxious to start a new day, but then again, so does Carol McCorkle. Good morning. (laughs) She says, oh my goodness, what's going on this morning? So Carol, this is your life every day? This is my life every day. (laughs) And it has been ever since she and her husband left their old way of life and created this. We are the Avian Reconditioning Center. We do rehabilitation, education, falconry. All of it right in your backyard. All of it right in our backyard, yes. How did you become you? How did you end up, I mean, it's so unusual to choose this course in life. Well, I've always been interested in animals. That's been a passion of mine my whole life, and I've always tried to help them in some capacity. And I was actually working um, as a county vet tech when a raptor came in. And that was the first time that I ever realized that you could look closely at a raptor. And, you know, uh, I just never really thought about doing something physically to help these animals once they got hurt. And that opened up a whole new world for me. The birds are totally misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, they are. So um, too many people still look at them as something that they don't want in their backyard rather than encourage them to be in their backyard. But that's changing. 
What do you see when you look at one? I see something beyond myself. I see beyond square one. Excuse me, what? I'm not going to feed you right now. No, I'm not going to feed you. No, I'm not. No. I see what's, uh, to me, what's important out there is is our whole natural world and what, what we can do for it to make it stay at least what we have and maybe improve what what we have. But the truth is, life keeps getting more dangerous for birds of prey. The result of contact with people seldom ends well. Those are hard days when, the, when we have the birds that die from direct human um, interaction. Those are, those are hard days. Do you have more losses or victories? Well, at our particular facility, um, we're fortunate to have more victories. We're a little bit unique here, and so we don't just do the simple rehab of day-to-day stuff. Right now we're working with a bald eagle that has tried to be released two times. It wasn't successful. This bird either doesn't have the ability to be out there or he hasn't learned enough to be out there. So what we'll do through falconry training is uh, see if we can't teach this bird how to to live and hunt. So stay tuned. (laughs) That's going to be an interesting one to follow this year. (laughs) Carol feels we are the ones living with blinders on, not just to the elegance of these creatures, but to the many benefits they provide. It's why Scott became a falconer. Well, are you ready? Yep, we're going to fly him. This is his pride and joy, a Barbary falcon, one of only 5,000 left in the world. Farmers will hire Scott to bring his to their fields where often just the presence of a falcon swooping by is enough to frighten off birds, rodents, and other would-be pests. And at educational shows, watching his falcon in flight leaves one of the most lasting memories of all. Yeah, he is really hitting the thermals today. Falcons are at the very top of the food chain. They have no real natural predators, but pesticides and the disruption of their habitats have kept their numbers from growing. And the McCorkles believe it's their calling to make as much noise about it as possible, feeling that what you can't see, you can't care about. In the half-dozen years they've operated the Avian Reconditioning Center, their eyes have been open to many things they didn't expect. Carol says the biggest surprise is what they discovered about their own lives. It's never too late? It's never too late. No, actually, we didn't even start this till we were 50. <laughs> so that's kind of when we started this. It's, it's, we figured at 50, it's like, yeah, we're still young. Let's get going. Now their goal is to increase their outreach to raise enough money to hire employees, to draw more families to the center, to visit more schools and groups, to educate as many people as possible to the plight of the raptors, and in doing so, actually teaching them the good side of what makes humans stand out as a species. What have you learned about life? To enjoy it. (laughs) Live every day to its fullest and do the best you can for what you decide you want to do. You know, look at what you want to do and really try and do it and work hard at it. You're not getting rich at it. No, I'm In not. In fact, it's <laughs> taking you the opposite yeah, direction. Yeah, it's taking us the opposite direction. But, but no regrets? No, no, no regrets. What makes it fun is, is having people go, wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen when a falcon comes zooming past them or when they can look in an owl's ear and they didn't even realize that they were here instead of there. And, you know, just, just all of those little things are what makes it important. And again, I have to go back to the, to the birds that we get to release, to the birds that we get to put back out there that get another chance. That's a really important step for us. Rehab can't be the cure. I've always been told that rehab's only the band-aid to the solution. Education is the cure to the solution. But there's no denying that it feels really good when you've gotten a little little Cooper's hawk that fell on the ground and just somebody didn't understand what was going on, picked it up, took it away from mom and dad, but we can get them back out there and we know they're catching prey and we're knowing we've done as much as we could do for that bird to give it a second chance. And that's what's great is giving wildlife a second chance. Of course, we've all heard the old adage, use it or lose it. 
Well, it turns out that that saying might just save your life or at least prolong it. More and more longevity experts are lining up behind the belief that staying active, relevant, and engaged in life can make a big difference in the quality of your life. Yeah, both physically and mentally, and it could be one of the keys to helping you live better longer. There's research out there now that seems to show that not only can it help in small ways, but it could help you stave off one of aging's biggest fears. Here's why. Hello, I'm Dr. Roger Landry, and I'm a preventive medicine physician focusing on successful aging. I'm also the author of Live Long, Die Short, a guide to authentic health and successful aging. There was a famous study done in Minnesota, and they, uh, they followed nuns as they age. And these nuns were physically active and mentally active, learning new things. And when these nuns had died, several of them on autopsy actually had Alzheimer brains with the tangled nerves and the plaques. And yet they did not have symptoms of Alzheimer's. What was going on? Well, the researchers concluded that their lifestyle of being physically active and being mentally active protected them somehow and pushed the onset of symptoms of dementia back, back, back. And for them, they never experienced it. Well, you can do this. You can do this by being physically active and continuing to learn new things. Yes, do the crossword puzzles you've always been doing, but learn new things. It grows new pathways and looks like it protects us from the early onset of any symptoms or maybe any symptoms of dementia. That's good news. Some very interesting and even more importantly, some encouraging information from Growing Boulder contributor, Dr. Roger Landry. Up next, from a honeymoon to the hospital, how lung cancer changed a newlywed's life and how now she wants to change yours too. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. This is Growing Boulder Radio with Mark and Bill, and it's time now for our surviving and thriving interview, because with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. And you know, nobody knows that better probably than our next guest. In 2013, she was one of over 200,000 Americans that year diagnosed with lung cancer. Lung cancer, unknown to many people, kills more than the next three most prevalent cancers combined. In fact, it kills more women than breast cancer. It did not kill her. And the way she shares her ongoing fight has drawn the attention of NBC, ABC, Parade, and People magazines, and more. She is Jennifer Glass. Hello, Jennifer. How are you today? Hi, Mark. Hi, Bill. Nice to talk with you. Well, you know, your story is so inspiring. So many people are diagnosed. Many share their story, but few have inspired as many others as you have. Tell us about your approach. Of course, it's a very personal reaction. I wouldn't begin to counsel anyone as to how they should react to a cancer diagnosis. You can't anticipate what it will be for you. Um, in in my case, my husband and I really from the beginning focused on getting the best factual information we could, finding as many options as we could for treatment, for what might happen after treatment, and for doing everything possible to take a little bit of the fear out of the situation. When I was first diagnosed, friends and family said to me, Jennifer, you're fearless. You're going to beat this thing. You're fearless. But, of course, I'm not fearless, but I have found ways to fear less, and that's been incredibly helpful. Well, the fear probably started shortly after maybe the happiest day of your life, your wedding day. You had you had a new job. You had a new home, kind of a new life. And four months later, everything changed. 
Yes, that, that's right. I was diagnosed almost exactly four months after my wedding day. My husband has two kids. I have two stepchildren. We had a, a new home. We were looking at really a very beautiful new life. And then then we got this cancer diagnosis. Um, but you take what life hands you. Even given that attitude, nobody is really ready for it. Uh, what did it do to you in, in, in the first few days, this diagnosis of cancer with, with really only a five-year survival rate? How did you respond? Well, with, especially within the first two days, a couple of days, there was so much information that we didn't know. I, I have to say, at no time was there, uh, was there panic in our house. We were very focused on uh, finding out all the information we could and not being afraid of something that we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. So we got the cancer diagnosis, yes. Then it was a few days before we knew uh, how advanced they thought it was. Then they had to do more tests to see had it spread to my brain, had it spread to my organs, and all of these factors would influence what kind of treatment I got. So we ran those tests, and, and in that period of time, it was really a waiting period. I didn't let myself go to the worst possible scenario, but at the same time, we were very pragmatic, and I was getting my papers in order, and I was um, trying to get ready as prepared as I could for whatever might come, prepared for the worst and hope for the best. And part of your preparation there, very interesting, you started looking at what it's like when you have to make end-of-life type decisions and you didn't like what you saw and you've been a big advocate in trying to change that. Can you tell us a little bit about what's wrong with the way we treat end-of-life right now? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, As I said, we looked at as many options as we could. We wanted all the options for treatment, wanted to know what our options were. And um, in, in... the likelihood at that time, given the possibility that my cancer might spread, we wanted to clearly understand what end-of-life options might be for me. Uh, And I was frankly surprised that in California, we don't have an end-of-life options act or law in place. I read a lot about the Oregon law, which looked very logical and comforting to me, so at the, in the early stages, really, I just did my research to find out what was available to me. Then my treatment was successful uh, in that it, my cancer is contained now. It looks like, I mean, practically, I'm not going to die this year, right? We'll, we, we'll see. We take it month by month. Um, so I have a little time. I don't. Maybe I have a lot of time. I don't know. And when I realized that I felt a little better and had some time, I needed to do something purposeful, with my days, and and I reached out to the group Compassion and Choices to see how I could help as an advocate to bring this kind of law to California. And there was a bill just introduced in the California Senate uh, last month. And there's a whole community, too, out there that are dealing with similar things. You know, when when you're fighting cancer, especially lung cancer, as prevalent as it is, people don't realize five years is is not a whole lot of time. And you do want to, at the end, you know, you talk about fear less— Fear comes from loss of control, and what you're trying to do is allow people to have more control over their life and over the end of their life. Well, that's absolutely right, and and if you let the fear take over, um, it 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 colors everything that that you do. If you can take the fear out of the equation even a little bit, you think more clearly, you make better decisions, and with luck, you find a path to peace, to, to living finding your balance between hope and acceptance of the situation. So you've stepped into this world that you didn't want to be any part of, that you really didn't know even existed, and here you are in this in this post-cancer diagnosis world. What can you tell the rest of us? What do you wish we all understood about what you've been through? Well, not so much just what I've, I've been through, but anyone with a serious life-threatening illness uh, the illness is bad enough, but what is often most debilitating is the fear that comes with it. And often, so often, that fear is the fear of how it's going to end. Am I going to drown in my own lung fluid? Does my functions fail? Um, 
that is what is most terrifying to me. If I knew I had a legal option to take a medically prescribed drug that would hasten the end of life, that fear would be lifted from me. And my days, I could live with so much more joy and peace. One thing I I would like to clarify is this is not, as often it's referred to as assisted suicide, it's not suicide. A suicidal person is someone who wants to end their life. I'm doing everything I can to extend my life. But there's a, a difference between extending life and prolonging the dying process. Once the dying process begins, I would like to have the legal option to hasten that process and exit this world with peace and ease. It's an important discussion, and it's one that uh, has even more far-reaching ramifications because it's about choice. It's about being the decision-maker, the person who's in control of what happens to you. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with people like Jennifer Glass, who who is pushing this issue and making sure this is a conversation that people have. Jennifer Glass, at the top of my lungs, living with lung cancer. That's her Facebook page. Check her out there, it's, uh, and uh, it's in the conversation that we all need to start thinking about. Thank Thanks, Jennifer. Up next, with his white hair whipping as he glides down the road on his skateboard, this 80-year-old is actually one of the coolest guys in the country. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. It's a theme we touch on quite a bit on this program. It's also the favorite topic of a guy who's sort of used, built to blowing people's minds. Yeah, you know, he's doing it now because he's just about to turn 80 and he's an avid paddleboarder. He's a surfer. He's a skateboarder. People see him flying down a hill with his long white hair sticking out from under this helmet and they think, well, there's an unusual guy. Well, guess what, Mark? They have no idea how right they are because under that helmet, under that white hair, is one of the most remarkable people in the country. And we're happy to be able to introduce you to Mr. Lloyd Kahn. How are you, Lloyd? Fine, thank you. You know, the skateboard these days is it seems to be what's getting you a lot of notice. Is it really a good idea for a guy who's nearly 80 to be on one? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, you know, I'm pretty careful. I, I mean, there's a couple of things about skating that are different from surfing. One is traffic, um, cars, and the other is when you fall, you're falling on a hard surface instead of in the water. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty careful. Um, so, uh, but you know, there is, there is an element of danger. Um, but then again, that sort of keeps you on your toes. <laughs> and before we get to what Paul Harvey would call the rest of the story, you haven't been skateboarding forever. How did you get started? When did you get started? Um, I got started when I was 65. Wow. Um, I, I, I've, been, I've been a surfer all my life, and um, I thought it would, you know, the surfing, the surfing helps. Um, and um, I have I've certainly fallen over the years, but I've probably gotten a little more conservative. And I don't ride a skateboard like the kids do. I don't get air. Uh, I don't ever get up off the, you know, off the board or off the ground with the board. I ride downhill on a, on a long board, which is maybe three and a half feet long. And the idea is to carve, to go, go back and forth. And I just, I try to be as graceful as possible. And I, I, I actually, I really love it and I'm kind of obsessed with it. And, and it has the advantage over surfing in that there aren't any crowds. Uh, surfing, there's only so many people can be on a wave, but skating, you know, you, you're, you're on your own. 
All right, so we've established that you're kind of a you're a very cool, kind of out of the box guy. Now let's let's go to what Mark said is the rest of the story. You started out selling insurance, you quit that to start building this incredible home, and then you ended up building and living in a geodesic dome and even became the spokesperson for domes and and really the entire counterculture. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I worked. I was the shelter editor for the Whole Earth Catalog in the late '60s, and um, and I learned how to make books working on the Whole Earth Catalog. And at that time, I was building geodesic domes, and so the first uh, I'm a publisher. Uh, I became a publisher with uh, two books on dome building, and then I discovered the domes didn't work, and I took the books, the dome books, out of print and did a book called Shelter, which was on all kinds of building. Um, so I, I had a pretty big audience by that time, and it, the do- domes were sort of the, the, the counterculture uh, method of building, of choice, for some reason. And um, so anyway, um, I got out of dome building and then got really back into more conventional building and have been doing books on building ever since. And that's kind of led you, Lloyd, to the, I guess, the tiny house craze. And uh, the book Tiny Homes on the Move has been flying off the shelves. Yeah. Well, the two two books we did. We did Tiny Homes, uh, and then a couple of years later, we did Tiny Homes on the Move. And the Tiny Homes book is really popular. Um we sort of, back in 1973, we did a book called Shelter, which the, the, the main focus of it was on tiny homes. And like a lot of things from the 60s um, are being rediscovered now. And so I think that's what's happened. And so that, that we, we, we sort of clicked with, the, the, with what's become a movement uh, when we did tiny homes. And then, then the last book we did is Tiny Homes on the Move, and the subtitle is Wheels and Water, which um, so that everything is moving. It's everything is nomadic. Uh, there, it's either rolling like a vans, campers, and house buses, or uh, or on the water, which would be sailboats and houseboats. So, so Lloyd, this this is what I I really really think is the coolest thing about you is that you are always looking for a way. You know, this sounds like wow. Well, here's some guy who's way green and he's way over to this one side of the room. But you've always been looking for that line between the modern world and and and, and self sufficiency. Yeah. That, well. Yeah. I, you know, back in the seventies, we tried to make it in, it with small scale farming. And uh, and one thing I learned then was that you can't be self-sufficient. You can move in the direction of self-sufficiency, but if you ever try to grow wheat um, and see the process that it takes from planting the seeds until you have flour, you realize that you can't do all of it, so you move in the direction of self-sufficiency. So it's kind of like a, a balancing act. You know, you do as much for yourself as you can, and and we do that now. I mean, we our main source of income is publishing but at the same time we have a big garden and chickens and uh you know raise a lot of our own as much of our own food as we can you know lloyd there there's no question that the media has stigmatized aging uh, we've all come to believe that it is a time of loss and decline that that we can't continue to do the things that we love we can't continue to learn what do you say to that based upon your own experiences um i think that um it's kind of like, you know, use it or lose it. I think that to not get discouraged, because there certainly are drawbacks to getting older. Uh, I found when I was 70, the whole game kind of changed. But, um, you know, to just keep on doing things and not not give up. And I think that one of the things I like about skating, uh, you know, learning a new physical skill when you're older, is I think it's, I think it's good for your brain and, um, you know, balance and things like that. And when people stop being active, that's, that's when they fall and they break their bones because they haven't been subjecting the bones to any stress. And so I think that, I think there's a whole new generation coming. I'm just maybe a little early, but that the baby boom generation will, will kind of rewrite history as far as aging is concerned. And you see it now. I mean, you see people 
older people doing things that um, you wouldn't have seen 20 or 30 years ago. I'm kind of curious, Lloyd, in, in our last 30 seconds or so, what do you, what's, what's Lloyd Kahn's life going to be like in his 80s? I'm looking forward to it, you know, from 80 to 90, um, you know, to just keep on doing as much as I can and to um, not rationalize but sort of mitigate the effects of aging. So just, you know, to keep on being active and, um, you know, having I, – I, I kind of seek adventures in working out rather than doing thing, things like competitive running, which I used to do. I just every time when I if I so if I'm looking for a workout I want to go on an adventure and go someplace that I haven't been hiking or, or paddling a kayak or something or other. Well, Lloyd, we think you're one inspiring guy. We love the way you've lived your life. You know, we hope to follow in your footsteps. And and really, you may very well be one of the most interesting men in the world. Folks, check him out on Google. There's so much to grab onto or watch him coming down a road in California on a skateboard somewhere near you. Look for Lloyd Kahn and you'll meet one amazing guy. Up next, you've heard the saying about an apple a day. Well, we'll meet a man who is proving what a difference a sandwich a day can make as well. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. That jingle jangle guitar of Roger McGuinn's means you're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And how many times do you hear it on this program where the biggest achievements and greatest accomplishments come from some of the smallest steps and the simplest ideas? Many times we ask, come on, what difference can one person make? Well, right now we're going to tell you about a difference that something as small as a sandwich can make. Yeah, the idea actually came from a guy who is retired after 32 years teaching at inner city schools in Minneapolis and who spent his entire lifetime helping the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, and the poor. He's dedicated hundreds of thousands of hours as a volunteer, and it's uh, what he's doing now with a simple sandwich that has gotten the attention of the entire nation. Let's say hello to the sandwich man, Alan Law. Hey, Alan, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Kind of a tough night, but uh, better than being in Boston last night. At least I can move around. Yeah, tough, later. tough night, and we'll explain why it is tough for you with what you have to do. But, but tell us about how this idea get started. Got started 15 years ago. What is it about the sandwich, and, and how are you using that to help others? Well, I started teaching school in Minneapolis 47 years ago, so I've been on the streets every night since I've. Basically, every night since I started teaching in September 1967. But uh, when I retired from teaching in September of 1999, I decided then that every night, the entire night, I would spend on the streets with homeless. And um, I mean, every night. And um, um, people are hungry. And so I, I got the idea of putting sandwiches together, and the, the word spread to churches and businesses and schools and different things. And um, this past year, I passed out 720,000 sandwiches um, on the streets of Minneapolis, and mainly Minneapolis and St. Paul also. Alan, that's incredible. And when people hear that story, they'll they'll either say, well, good for him, but I don't know, that's a little out there, because you drive through the highest crime areas. You personally hand out each sandwich. You go on the streets, as you said, every night, all night long. Isn't that crazy dangerous? Well, that's crazy, but um, and a lot of the sandwiches do. For I'll give you an example. I, I bring sandwiches to three Salvation Armies where they provide one meal. The people come in at night, sleep on a, on a mat or whatever, and are kicked out basically in the morning. And um, so I bring sandwiches to these three Salvation Armies, a couple of Catholic charities. I go, actually go in the buildings themselves if people need anything other than sandwiches, um, whatever. And, um, and people, uh, there's other organizations that, that basically don't, provide more than one meal a day, so I take care of that. And then when, when those uh, the men and women wake up in the morning, kicked out at 6.30, they can take a couple sandwiches with them. 
Uh, in the meantime, I'm driving up and down, looking under bridges. Almost people basically, and some it's unbelievable, uh, quite a few even in, here in Minnesota, living outside, living outside that cannot afford a place to live and live on basically living these sandwiches. Folks, we're talking to Alan Law, a.k.a. the Sandwich Man, who doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a lot of resources, but has found a way to help the homeless people in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, And, Alan, right now the temperature in Minneapolis has got to be down below zero. You certainly don't deliver on nights when it's this cold, do you? (laughs) Actually, the windshield was like below zero last night, but the temperature was like the the low teens. And uh, except when I had cancer two years ago, and uh, I was in the hospital, I had prostate cancer surgery, and I had to find the people to, to deliver the sandwiches to different agencies, but they weren't able to stay on the streets like I did. Other than that, and two days in Washington, D.C., in uh, 2000, where I was there at the, at the Supreme Court, the, the United States Senate, and people really encouraged me to go. Other than that, I've been on the streets every night, every night. I don't care what the weather is, there's many difference. I have it better. At least I can get in the, in the car and, and warm up. But um, I know someone called me last year one day. It was windshield was 43 below or 44 below windshield. And they said, you're not going out tonight. And I said, nope, you're not. Uh-uh. Not till I find my other shoe. But uh, this is what I do. I will not. I'm not. I'm real serious. People here know what I'm talking about. I won't take a day off. And so I die, and that's the, that's the truth. You know, Alan, one of the things I became aware of is that really we don't know much about the homeless. You know, when I asked if you were crazy, it's based on my own impression on what it must be like out there. So when you're out there, are they are they happy? Are they angry, violent, grateful? Uh, the biggest problem I see with homelessness is people they just um, – they they just mentally there's so many people that have disregarded they just their own families don't care. This is the saddest thing. It's it's a, it's a loneliness that I see, and so that's the reason that I have to do this out on the streets and with people to let them know that you know things are are bad, but they could be worse. They could you know, and we want them better. My goal is to get 400 people off the streets every year. Not to deliver this year it'll be over this year it'll be way over a million sandwiches. I'm not happy about that. I, I wish it was a hundred thousand zero. So my thing is to try to get as many people that are able to work to work. But I, I look at Minneapolis situation and I said, well, a room downtown Minneapolis in a rooming house is four hundred and fifty dollars. And working part time, you can't even find enough work to to uh, to justify. To, to pay for that, and so, um, but it's worked. Last year, I had four um, four hundred and twenty people off the streets, and um, my goal every year is four hundred people. But uh, and it's not just not just sandwiches; it's everything you can imagine, from everything from blankets, seven thousand pair of socks, and people ask me often, "Well, where do all the sandwiches come from?" Churches, schools, and businesses make the sandwiches. I, I call my food program three six three. 30 years ago, a church I was involved in said, well, we should do something for the poor on Thanksgiving. And someone else said, what about Christmas? And I'm in the back row going, what about the other 363 days that most people don't think of the poor? And that's why on the side of my van, it says, love one another, and <laughs> along with my, my, my cell phone number. And it says 363 to remind people that, uh, that there's more than just two days a year that we should be thinking of people. And to hear that guys like Alan Law are out there, I mean, that it's very inspiring because here's a guy, he's a retired school teacher. He didn't make a ton of money doing that, but he found a way to make a difference. He decided that he wasn't going to wait for somebody else to do it. He got up and others are trying to help him in his footsteps. Other church groups, schools are helping him make the sandwiches. Handed out, he's going to hand out over a million this year. So the next time you doubt that you could ever do something that makes a difference, just think of Alan Law, all volunteers, no salaries for anybody. And as he said, for more information, maybe you want to help, maybe you want to start it in your area, go to 363days.org. And could I mention the other, the other, the organization, Minneapolis Recreation Development Corporate, the website is www.m, is in Minneapolis, R, Recreation, D, Development, just M-R-D, and then I-N-C, dot org. 
And uh, for 29 years, I paid for this program myself out of my teaching salary. The debt was unbelievable, and I woke up in 1996 one day and said, I can't continue this. So we incorporated our nonprofit organization, 501c3, with no salaries, no deferred compensation, no expense account, no building. I live in an apartment, but I pay the rent, and I have 17 freezers, each one holding close to 1,000 sandwiches, 17 freezers in my apartment, and um, I live in my pension. Uh, Minneapolis uh, public school teacher for 32 years, and uh, and that's it. Uh, it. This is not a religious organization, but I am a Christian, and uh, it's 20 hours a day. And I'm I'm real serious. And unless uh, they come up with cancer or something again, I won't miss a day the rest of my life. And I don't complain because I don't have to do it. But this is what I'm on this earth for. There you go, folks. Great inspiration from the amazing Alan Law. Thanks, Alan. Well, that's going to do it for now, but remember, Growing Boulder continues on. We invite you to check out Growing Boulder TV for hope, inspiration, and possibility delivered directly to your home. Why not subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine at GrowingBoulder.com? And be sure you check us out on Facebook to discover why the Growing Boulder page is really one of the biggest, most engaged pages of all. And, folks, we have a takeaway for you from today's show. You know, when you're a kid, being different can be so devastating. We learn very young how not to stand out in the crowd, but as we age, we discover that what makes us different is what makes us who we are. Whether it's a cop-turned-rocker like Eddie Money, or you decide to live off the grid in a geodesic dome like Lloyd Kahn, or like Alan Law, you overcome your disfigured hands and scarred head to become a world-class master's athlete. The best way to happiness and fulfillment is to accept your differences and thrive because of them. That's what we call growing bolder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. Said I, proud neath heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older.